So what's this podcast about then? Continue listening. But just for a quick background, my name is Samir Bunga and I am from the firm Bunga Legal. This podcast is about the world of 2022 and how things are very different from what they were last year or even a couple of years ago. Just think about the last three years and where it's brought us in life so far. Let's remember we won't just be talking about the law, however. There will be a lot of opinion on this show, both ours and the opinions of our guests. We also need to remind you this is not legal advice, as this is very general. We do not necessarily hold the same opinion as the guests who appear on our show, but we are a very open show and we will be broadcasting a lot of different opinions. Are you there, Samir? I am. How are you, Bridget? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So, guys, today we're doing episode two. As you saw, the first episode was with the Primod, and I'm glad to have him as a guest on the show, and we'll have him back at some point. But today we have Bridget, who's part of the Bunga Legal team and also a solicitor at the firm, quite obviously. I'll make that clear. But both of us have been paying particular attention to the Novak case, and I'm going to call it Novak versus the Commonwealth of Australia or the Commonwealth government, because it seems like the Victorian government actually was okay with Novak coming in. What do you reckon, Bridget? Um, (laughs) I have lots of views on on this. Um, I think that this is a matter where the Victorian government have tried to escape some sort of liability and responsibility for granting an exemption to Djokovic to play at the the Australian Open um, and then have made it a, a Commonwealth issue. It's quite interesting, isn't it? it? The buck was passed a few times. It was quite confusing. Look, even I thought at one time it was the wrong visa that was applied for, but I have to say I fell into the the hole of listening or actually paying attention to some of the articles, which I don't usually do. So that's my fault. I'll take that one on the chin. But the end result was a good one. Both me and you had a strong feeling it was going this way. But I'd like to draw people's attention to the fact that the government has been ordered to pay Novak's costs. And that's a big thing. Novak had two senior barristers. He had two QCs in this matter. I, I, look, some people have actually asked me this question, how much will his legal fees have cost? I'm estimating close to $30,000 a day. That could be wrong. QCs can charge anywhere from about $6,000, which is the lower end. They're most likely going to be around ten. Up to, and I shouldn't, up to is the wrong way to put it, but on average, we're like up to about 20, 30 grand a day. So it's very possible it cost him more than that. And then there would have been all the preparation and work involved. And because they were called in at such an urgent time or on with a matter of urgency, could even be forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a day. Not that the country will have to pay all of that, but a significant amount of that. So that's a huge thing in itself. I agree, and I think it's probably important to flag that that will be at the cost of the taxpayer as well. That's a very bloody good point. So we're paying for something we didn't even agree with. We didn't agree with stopping him in the first place. We didn't agree with what was done, and yet we're forking the costs. I guess the people that did want him out or didn't want him in because they want to call him a so-called anti-vaxxer, they might they might live a little bit easier knowing that something was done according to them, but it's a bit extreme. Now, don't get me wrong, these costs can be assessed. It might not be the entirety of it. They can be agreed or assessed, but no one's mentioned that yet, which I'm surprised at the court-ordered cost. The court also ordered that he must be released within 30 minutes of making the order. And I have to say, I didn't watch the whole hearing itself, but parts of it, 
the judge, Judge Kelly, made some pretty interesting comments. And when he said what the game changer for me was when he said, what else could this man have done? Or words to that effect. Pretty strong. You don't often get such strong indication from a judge like that. What do you reckon, Bridget? Well, that's the thing. I think that all of those indicate the sentiments of the judge about the case. You know, him saying that, you know, what more could Djokovic have done? Well, what more could he have done? I did listen into some of the hearing and as Djokovic's counsel was presenting their arguments, it was really quite shocking at how Djokovic had been treated um, and, you know, he did arrive with as much evidence as he believed he needed to be able to enter the country lawfully. I think it's probably interesting too, and you and I have discussed this, I don't believe any of this is a coincidence. <laughs> um, you know, if we look at the public sentiment that was expressed the day before Djokovic entered the country, arrived here in Australia, there was enormous public outcry about him being granted a visa to enter Australia while he was unvaccinated. And then he arrives at Melbourne Airport and his visa's revoked. I just find that all a little bit too coincidental, to be honest. Uh, and I really do think, and you and I have discussed this, that, that this is really a bit of a political stunt that's um, that's backfired really for the federal government. I Look, I couldn't agree more. I actually don't understand why discretion wasn't used, why it got to this point in the first place and this whole bloody thing about rules being rules. Are people actually, do people actually believe that? Like genuinely at this point? Well, I think that the reason why discretion wasn't used by Australian Border Force at Djokovic when Djokovic arrived is because it worked to the federal government's advantage to let the matter go to court because politically speaking mm. it allowed them to wipe their hands of it. So they went, well, you know, it, it's not our responsibility anymore. We've, you know, we've issued this visa but now we've revoked it so we've done everything we can do. It's now up to the courts. It's very clever. It's a complete, in my opinion, it's just that that in itself was you know, a clever political strategy. That's my view. That may not have been what happened, but I do, again, think that it's interesting that they didn't exercise that discretion at Melbourne Airport. Australian Border Force didn't exercise that discretion at the airport and allowed it to go to court, which essentially just allows the federal government to wipe their hands of it. Yeah, look, that's a good point. That's a good point. Either way, I think they look at absolute idiots at this point, especially overseas. The Serbian government can't think nicely of the Commonwealth government very, well, at this current moment, I don't see how well, anyone can. They're <laughs> laughing stuff. Like who's actually appreciating Australia right now outside Australia? And that's the thing. I think that, um, you know, very quickly, very early on, we did hear on Thursday morning that the Serbian president had you know, had come to uh, Dokovic's defence and, you know, which is interesting because, I mean, there's lots of interesting things to say about that. I think that one being that's not something our <laughs> our government really does with uh, nationals that get sort of caught up in matters overseas. We, you know, I think we're a bit lax in, our government is a bit lax in that respect. Um, but, yes, definitely, you, you know, there was, with the events that transpired, it you know, it has turned into a bit of an international diplomatic disaster, in my opinion. Yeah, look, the other thing I wanted to raise here is a couple of comments that I've seen. 
about other asylum seekers who have been kept in that same centre and one gentleman's apparently been there for seven or eight years. Mm. Now, there's been this comment about how apparently anti-vaxxers or a certain group of people haven't made any fuss or any issue about these guys being here, these people being here, which is completely, look, I'm not going to swear today, but it's completely wrong. (laughs) I know you have definitely been involved in topics like this for a long time. I know I have. A lot of my clients have faced many difficulties, and I'm not talking about just immigration law, uh, as we do to immigration law at the firm, but criminal law and family law. I've been looking at this and seeing this for such a long time and commenting on it, on the disparity and the inequity. So what the hell? Yes, right now we're both looking at Novak Djokovic's case, but we've never ignored it. What's your opinion on that? uh, Where do I start, to be honest? I mean, I just find that kind of attitude really problematic from the outset because people that sort of take this view well you know um what about the refugees of course what about the refugees absolutely but why should we why should we examine why why can't you why can't we just look at Novak's case at the moment and when it when we're looking at it why do we have to be apparently criticised for not making noise about everyone else there. This goes well, back exactly to... that's exactly right. It's, it's, I mean, that's the thing. What, I, I, and just to take a step back, we should be, we should be um, championing the fact that Novak actually won yesterday because he, he took on the federal government and he challenged them. And what that demonstrated is, is that, you know, the, the courts work. And I think that that's something really important to take away. Um, back to what you were saying with people that that are, you know, sort of now saying, well, where are the human, you know, why hasn't anyone been talking about these, the, the refugees in, uh, detained uh, where Novak was detained? Um, we have been talking about it. And I just think that there's it's really problematic to discredit sort of one issue by focusing on another um it's this i i don't know there's this really strange i mean i take issue with people that that you know call themselves human rights advocates but then aren't prepared to be an advocate for everyone's human rights and that's how i see this situation like you know these people claim to be championing for for you know refugee rights and all that sort of thing okay but what happened to Djokovic was an issue of procedural fairness, which is exactly what you're asking for, for, for the refugees that are detained in that hotel. That's how not I Not to mention, it. well, I completely agree, not to mention for other people in Australia and people have lost their jobs and houses because of the mandate. And this is going to be a big call, but they're effectively becoming refugees in their own country. Some of these people who are fleeing to other states. People who have left Victoria because of that, possibly come to New South Wales and are still looking for work and are struggling, but their rights are completely ignored. Look, I, I'm going to openly admit refugees in the best term here. I am making a comparison, and if anyone wants to criticise, I'm going to go for gold. But mm. there are certain similarities, and people are going to say, well, no, there's always worse. We're seeing this, we're seeing that. And I'll point back to Afghanistan, where for about two days everyone was up in arms. I was seeing all these social media posts. It was ridiculous that people have forgotten about that now, and it's just unbelievable what happened. The Taliban's apparently taken over. From what I understand, young women and females are not allowed education right now. But mm. where is everyone talking about that? But no, this, but for this issue, it's different. 
Absolutely. And this is where, you know, I've come across the term virtue signaling in the last couple of months. And that's what I believe it is. I believe people jump on a human rights cause just to make themselves look, you know, uh, good, like morally speaking, um, and, and, and is like waving some kind of moral flag. And they're actually using the oppression and the vulnerability of people who are suffering human rights abuses to make themselves look good. And that's how I see it. And I think that that's something that really people need to, they need to be pulled up on because no one has the right to, to use someone who is suffering to make themselves appear to be a good and better person. Because in my opinion, if you if you really cared about those people, you wouldn't forget them, forget about them the minute that they fall, you know, the the issue falls from, you know, from mainstream media and falls from the major headlines. Um, you would be dedicated to that cause, just like I have been throughout my life, just like you have been in, you know, in the causes that we're passionate about. Uh I really take offence to those people that jump on a human rights cause and wear it as a badge and it's incredibly frustrating and, and I really feel that that's, again, what we're seeing here. With I feel like people are using this, the Dokovic matter, again, as a form of virtue signalling surrounding you know, the, the refugees that were detained alongside him. And just to clarify for people that don't understand, effectively what virtue signalling means is you're pretending to be to support a cause or to support a certain issue, say, for example, by posting on social media for a short period of time when gen you don't actually genuinely hold those beliefs or you do it for show rather than to create or affect real change. So That's in this right. case, we're saying people are trying to bring down supporters of Novak by saying, oh, you didn't do a good enough job about the refugees. What are you talking about? Stuff like that. That's Would that right. be right? It's deflection. It's just deflecting, you know. Um, that, you know, it is a way of deflecting. Um, but that that is, I think you've summed it up perfectly, what virtue signalling is. Um, I actually called it the highest form of socially acceptable narcissism because that's what I believe it is. <laughs> and that yeah, might sound... It. Interesting point. Interesting point. Just explain why you think that because I think some people well, won't quite understand. But give us a rundown. Well, because, I mean, narcissism is all, you know, I know that word gets thrown around a lot, so I don't mean it in its sort of um, diagnostic sense. Uh, we all are capable of, you know, we. I think narcissism is on a spectrum. Well, narcissism is on a spectrum and we all are capable of eliciting narcissistic traits. Uh, and, you know, essentially that is narcissism is about the self. And so, you know, virtue signaling isn't actually about the cause in which you're attempting to champion. It's actually about how you look while you're championing that cause. Um, and that, like you mentioned, seeing people post on social media and but then also forget about these human rights issues within a couple of days or a week, um, you know, they're only posting about it because they want to be seen to be a good person, not because they actually care about the cause in which they're claiming to champion. Uh, and I believe that it's 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 really no one's really talking about that sort of at this point. And and that's why I think that it's it's socially acceptable because how could you call someone out if they're championing human rights issues? Like they look like a good person. How could you say, oh well, you know, you're a terrible person for doing this. It's, it's you know, it's very clever and, and that's where I think it hasn't yet been explored. 
And that's why I think at this point it's socially acceptable is because you're being seen to do a good thing. So, but really you're not actually doing a good thing. You're doing it because of how it makes you appear to other people. So I don't know if that sounds very, um, if that makes sense, but that's sort of, I don't yeah. Sense. It, yeah. It does make sense. So moral of the story is if you're going to get behind the cause, actually genuinely support it, or at least don't do what some of these people are doing, what some people are doing at this time and just make a complete farce out of it. And if you don't understand something, you don't understand it. We, we get that. Not everyone has the same opinion, but to try and bring other people down by doing some of these things, such as virtue signaling, isn't right either. Well, it also flies in the face of what human rights is all about, in my opinion. Like, why are we put? Why is there a hierarchy? And you know, why is there a hierarchy to people's rights? Like, you know, Djokovic was entitled to, you know, a, 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 to go to court to challenge that. That's his right to be able to do that. Like, it's that's something I don't understand, and I think that's something that we've seen in this pandemic is that is the inconsistency in, in the selectiveness in the causes and the rights that people want to support and then the ones that they're choosing to ignore. And I think the best example of that is when we look at mandatory vaccination. So we're happy to to say, well, you know, people are, you know, the right, we, we look at the right to health and the right to life and we we say, well, everyone needs to get vaccinated so that, you know, vulnerable people are, you know, kept healthy and well and so that vulnerable people don't die as a result of coronavirus. But then we're not exploring the other human rights issues that fall alongside making the vaccine mandatory. And I know I've probably got off topic in talking about that and we can come back to it, you know, in another podcast to discuss it. But, you know, it's the issue I take again is with just people being selective in rights, you know, human rights courses and, and issues that they choose to champion. Yeah, completely, completely. And this is what you've raised is a huge point here, this bloody hierarchy in rights. Now, I understand there are a lot of places that have it worse or a lot of people that have it worse. Both me and you are immigrants to this country, as you pointed out before, so yeah. basically everyone except the First Nations Australians. However, right. <laughs> taking that aside, we're definitely more recent immigrants, at least yeah. to put it that way. We've both seen people who are in worse positions. You've travelled overseas, I think it was Cambodia, you were saying, and what Nepal, you're, you've worked yeah. Nepal, sorry, you've worked on some pretty serious issues. So That's we right. get it. But when we are seeing people struggle in our own backyard, let me put it this way. I can help someone here in New South Wales or Victoria or one of our other states or territories much, much easier than I can help someone who I don't have access to in an African country in Sudan, for example. I can probably donate money to that cause. I can probably assist people in other ways, but I can't do as much as what I can do here. So why is it wrong for me to assist here? Secondly, if someone here does not have a roof over there, they can't afford to feed themselves, they can no longer, they don't have a job, their business has gone bust, they have family. Why is that any less of a concern than someone overseas who doesn't have food or cannot support their family? It is not. It is not. That makes zero sense. Yet people try to shed shame or try to throw shame on people here. And they say that there's, again, as you raised, there's this bloody hierarchy, which only exists when they want it to. Other times they're completely ignorant. So give us a bit of your, even this is going completely off topic, but just quickly, a bit of your experience on that because you have done some work in human rights internationally. Well, that's, I mean, like you said, there are people that obviously their experience is 
I don't know. It's it's difficult to uh, uh, a lot more tragic. Maybe is the right way to express it. Um, you know, I did. I was over in Cambodia and was on the Khmer Rouge trials over there and prosecuting the um, Nguyen and Q Sampan and then went to work for a human rights organisation in Cambodia. Um, and, I mean, this is potentially off topic, but one thing I did learn while I was there and one thing that became maybe not learned but really came to the forefront for me is the is um, people going in there, people going into the developing world and telling countries how to fix their human rights problems. Um, and I think that that's a massive issue. And again, I'm probably getting off topic, but, you know, I think a lot of human rights issues need to be about empowering the community in a way to help them to resolve the, the, prob- the struggles that they face because they are facing them. They're, they're experiencing those problems and really the only people that know how to solve them are the people experiencing it. I think that, you know, going in and assisting the developing world, it's just it's, it's more of a, a support in a support sort of pers- from a, a support kind of perspective rather than doing the work per se. And I don't really, like, that's how I, that's how I view it and that's what I think needs to happen. Um, I'm probably, like I said, I'm probably way off topic, but that just is something that really first sprung to mind for me. Um, what was your question, Samia? Sorry, I got way off. I was going to say, speaker. No, no, you, you, you didn't. But mind you, I kind of forced your topic by saying, so give us some of your experience or examples of where you did work overseas. Because, look, the point is you have actually been involved in human rights work genuinely. I have. The last person that can criticise you for your opinion or your work, I'm sorry, I'm, what I should say is you're the last person that can be criticised well, for that. I mean, and it's I'm- interesting. I'm probably not the last person that's, you know, like people can still criticise me. I'm open to criticism because I have some experience but I'm not, you know, I haven't worked. There are people more qualified than what I am. And, you know, I'm here today just expressing my views. Uh, But I think more to the point, it's not just the work I've done overseas and in human rights, but it's who I am. Like I, for me, I engage with, I've always been open to helping people and making myself available to provide people with information and knowledge about the law and about their rights because you, and you and I have discussed this before, access to the law and access to justice is a huge human rights issue right across the world here in Australia. My, and, you know, back to Dokovic now, people keep on saying, well, you know, the elite get everything. Like, look, he was able to get this court case. Yes, he was because he has money. And and just sort of a side note to that, I think it's probably important to flag that he would have grown up through the former Yugoslavia conflict. So he, I don't, I mean, I don't know him personally, but I can't imagine he came from privilege, but he is certainly, you know, he's certainly a person of privilege now. But he was able to access justice because he had the the funds to be able to do that. That's not his fault. That's a fault of our no, system. Exactly. That's a fault of our system. So instead of people getting up and saying, oh, but, you know, the elite this and, you know, look what happens when you have money, direct your anger to the government that makes accessing justice so difficult for the refugees that are detained because they don't have the funds to take matters to court and to challenge the government. And for every other Victorian and Australian. 
100% right. And this is, this is a very good point. Look, there is some or there are some organisations that assist, but they are limited. How many refugees are in the country? I don't have a number on this, but there are a lot. If you any resources they have across these refugees, you're not going to have enough people and resources to assist them. I know when the Afghanistani, uh, when we had the Afghanistani troop withdrawal, we helped in a couple of, our immigration law helped in a couple of those matters and that's what we could do at the time. But I can tell you now, if I ask my immigration lawyer to start, is to start doing work for, on a general consensus for nothing for that as much as I want to, how much capacity is he going to have? How much, what's he going to be able to achieve? It's just, there's a limit to this. And there are good people doing it. There are organisations trying to help, but they're limited. And resources is that dilemma. The government doesn't care. In fact, they want to keep it quiet because, quite frankly, they are, they're promoting the abuse of human rights by keeping them in there for seven or eight years. So why aren't we criticising the government and criticising them heavily? Don't criticise Novak for being there. And bloody hell, the best part about this sadly in a way because it's kind of ironic but that Novak was in that hotel in the first place mm. and this gentleman now got a broadcast and people know about him thanks to Novak that's not right. like so what are we complaining about in fact if anything he's helped the cause I I completely agree with you but I also think that that's the problem with these people that have criticized him for what it for, for you know the variety of reasons all the people that have said you know, well, what about the refugees? He has drawn attention to them. I, I feel like those people that come out and say things like that can never be, they will never be happy. They will always find something to criticise. I see so many positives with what has happened um, with with Novak uh, and, and this whole situation. And, you know, a lot of, I mean, I think even he has come out and said how grateful he is to the court process for doing what it has and, um, I watched an interview with his uncle last night and he said, you know, we're grateful to the um, the Australian legal system for showing us that it works. I'm grateful for that. You know, there are lots of positives, but I feel like those people that, that, that are sort of, you know, well, what about the refugees? Well, yes, what about them? But like you said, rightfully so, the, this whole situation has drawn attention where it needed to go from an international, it has drawn international media coverage. That no one else Completely. has been able to really achieve, I think, not in the re- not in recent not recently anyway. Certainly not in the last two years while we've been in this pandemic. Completely agree. Look, and that's a very good point. This is this has brought a light onto what's happening. The government is now more accountable, and everyone has been talking about Novak Djokovic. And generally, I wouldn't pay attention. I don't watch tennis, or at least not for a long time. I haven't. I didn't really know much about, I knew Novak, everyone knows Novak, I guess, but yeah. I didn't know that much about him. But mm-hmm. now all of a sudden I see myself paying attention to it for the reason you put in too, or you just put up. This, the court system did work here. That's right. The way the judge actually looked at the evidence and described it and his comments, it was great. It was great to see it work. This should tell people there is hope. We just need to get it right. So far, that right case hasn't come up, and I'm talking about the mandates and directions here, mm-hmm. and we'll speak about this properly later. But what it should do is give you some confidence in the system. There is, some, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes it's about timing and resources. Well, you've mentioned resources already, but timing's the next thing. Mm-hmm. In this case, the Australian Open was like right around the corner. 
and you have the right candidate, the right poster boy for it, it went well. I, this same thing could work in the other cases. But, again, that's something that's around the corner and coming. So are you going to say something? Um, no, I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no, it's all good. But, look, people need to understand that the court system, there are issues with it. It's incredibly slow. I can tell you that in some of the courts that I'm going to, we're getting hearing dates for criminal matters for eight months to a year down the track. It's not great. And these people are basically on bail and waiting, awaiting their hearing for months on end. That's not the way it should be. No. Supreme Court's going to have a backlog. The High Court's obviously got a backlog. It's very difficult to get into. We know these issues exist. But we shouldn't completely write it off. Our court system isn't a complete failure. There is issues with it. There always will be. But we have to play with what we have to play with as well. And unfortunately, the access to justice will be a podcast in itself. I think we need to come to it at some point because we've posted on it a few times. But you're, you rightfully pointed out, Novak Djokovic has the resources. His access to justice was good because of that. He had two QCs, four barristers all up. That is not, not a luxury most of us would be afforded unless you were him or Clive Palmer effectively. Mm. But we can't criticise him for it. He used his money. And the government paid his bloody costs or will be. Well, that's exactly right. Like I said, I think it's really, I, I think it's it's ridiculous to blame Djokovic for being able to get to court. He has the money to be able to do it. It's misplaced anger and misplaced frustration, in my in my opinion. That frustration with, you know, the refugees that have been detained, being unable to access the courts, is really needs to be directed toward the government. In, rather than at Djokovic. Like it's just, it's a bizarre logic to me. Why would you be angry at a man because he was able to access justice because other people can't, like it, that are in the same situation? It doesn't make sense. Like I, I really feel when people start to make these assessments, they're really reacting from an, an emotional space and they're not thinking through what they're actually saying and what they're actually asking for. Um or, or, or alternatively, they just really, yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we see it as an access to justice issue, I guess, because of our legal background. Maybe they don't, maybe they just don't have the capacity to see it, you know, in a full spectrum like we do. And, and you know, again, this is where I think there needs to be a lot more education in the community. And, again, like I'm going way off topic, but a lot more education about these very important you know, legal issues which become social issues as well, which become human rights issues, things like access to justice, what that means, what that looks like, what that does involve. Because what we're seeing with Djokovic is, is that people really don't understand what that is about. No, completely right. And what I want people to understand Djokovic's matter, if you do pull up the transcript and if you want to have a good read, the transcript is quite good. The reason I say that is you need to see how Djokovic presents himself. Mm. He's very honest. He's very forefront. Like he just comes out quite well. His credibility is great. And in fact, when he makes a mistake, I guess you could say, or misunderstands a question the interviewer asked, he actually apologizes and clarifies and does, in my opinion, does what he possibly can do. He assists as much as he possibly can. And the judge made a decision based on that. Judge Kelly pointed that out that said Djokovic did do as much as he possibly do. How how is it his fault? And let's not forget, Djokovic was interviewed approximately 3 a.m. in the morning. Mm. So I could only imagine the guy mustn't have been at his capa- like peak capacity at that point either, and he didn't. 
he looked, I'd even heard it, but I'm reading the transcript. Sounded like he was pretty nice and civil and he didn't lose his mind over it or lose his shit, as I could say. I agree with you. I've, I, you know, sort of, I've been reading through, I was reading through the transcript just earlier and he seems very reasonable, very level-headed, very respectful, as being as accommodating as, you know, he can be. Um, it's, you know, you can't fault him. And this is where I don't understand all these people that have that are now attacking him on a personal level. It's not warranted. And I feel again, these people are reacting to an injustice that actually has nothing to do with Djokovic himself. It's it's a it's a it's a system it's a systems issue. Like it's it's a it's a systematic issue that we face, not a problem with Do- with Djokovic himself. And and that's yeah. where people really. I just wish people would take the time before they, you know, jump on the internet and start making these, you know, assumptions and spreading misinformation about what's transpired and actually take the time to reflect and absorb the information that's available and then make an assessment of the situation. Because I think what we're seeing is just highly reactive and intentionally divisive information and views being shared, to be honest. Completely. I just want to, I'll take people to a part of the transcript where the interviewer effectively gives Djokovic 20 minutes to get documents, three, well, close to 4 a.m. in the morning. And Djokovic responds by saying, so you're giving me legally 20 minutes to try and provide additional information that I don't have at 4 o'clock in the morning. I mean, you kind of put me in a very awkward position where at 4 in the morning I can't call the director of Tennis Australia. I can't engage with anybody from Victorian state government through Tennis Australia. I just, you put me in a very uncomfortable position. I don't know what else I can tell you. I mean, everything that they, I was asked to do is here. Is that not the cry of a man who has basically done his bit? Well, it is, Samia, but what it makes me, my first thought is, is if the Australian Border Force can do that to Novak Djokovic and the Australian government can do that to Novak Djokovic, what do you think they're doing to everyone, to other people that aren't, the, the men's number one tennis champion. Uh, Bridget, I don't even know if I want to know the answer to that because that's bloody scary. But, well, I, yeah. I don't know the answer to that. But, but what I'm saying is, is that if you think that the government, if the government believes it, 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 it's acceptable or can get away with treating Novak Djokovic in this way, what do you think it's capacity is to do this to other to other Australians it's a scary thought other Australians or other refugees or other immigrants coming in I can tell you I can't remember what the stats are but you can only imagine coming into the country as a tourist for example and just being how scared you may be these days getting pulled over by someone from a department and being interviewed and questioned and don't get me wrong there are obviously people that shouldn't be entering the country and who are entering uh, I guess you could say unlawfully and illegally, mm. but these aren't refugees because that's not actually illegal if we go to certain conventions. However, that's, that's right. a story of another day. Yeah. But anyway, you were going to say, what do you want to say, Bridget? Uh, I can't remember what I was going to say now. <laughs> Sorry, Samia. Oh, no, God. no, it's, it's, it's all good. But look, effectively, what the big thing here is Novak Djokovic did everything he could possibly do from what I can see. I just don't understand why the government didn't use their discretion. You're pointed out reasons that you think might apply. You could it's, be right. 
yeah. I, I find it absolutely mind-boggling. I think what we have started is started a downward spiral for the government and how stupid they look in international politics right now. I cannot imagine oh, honestly, who would expect that government right now. I, no one. because And I think that this was the first thing I said to you. This is just Australia, everyone is already looking at Australia and how we've managed the pandemic and our border, you know, rules and restrictions. And I mean, I can be remember being in Europe eight or nine years ago and people in France were asking me why we treated refugees the way we did. We've been on, we've been, Australia's had the global spotlight for all the wrong reasons for some time, in my opinion. And this has, this is just, it's an international diplomat, like international relations and diplomatic disaster in itself. But now the spotlight is on Australia and Victoria again for all the wrong reasons. And it's, um, as we've already said, it's now illuminated the fact that we have refugees that have been housed in detention for nine years, which the government, you know, has now been exposed on an international scale as well. It, Australia's international reputation, in my opinion, I don't know how much lower, if it can go any lower. It's just, this is an, this is an international embarrassment. It is absolutely. And I, I don't know how we bounce back from this. We have humiliated the, the, the you know, in my opinion, we've humiliated Novak Djokovic, who's the number one men's tennis player in the world. And Serbia, and I think that that's probably important to remember. That what, from my understanding, what's been expressed from, you know, the Serbian president and Djokovic's family, the country is feels humiliated. That's that's oh. not that's not ever a positive thing. And I think even you know at the end of the hearing yesterday, um, counsel for the government suggested that they may look at cancelling his visa for a second time and Judge Kelly quickly shot that down. But even alluding to it at this point, I don't know who is advising the Australian government on these matters, but that is just, like, even to suggest it, in my opinion, is just, I mean, I, I'm actually at a loss, to be honest. I don't have the words. The, the, uh, I, I really yeah, I ex- I've expressed this to you before. I just don't know what the hell the Australian government are doing. <laughs> a lot of us do not. A lot of us do not. Look, I guess a few things that I do want to clarify or point out before we end up is that this basically there was a lot of work done in a very short period of time. I do think council's done a good job. Don't People shouldn't take this against Commonwealth or the federal government's council as well. They did as instructed, they took a brief and they ran the matter as best as they could. Quite frankly, I think they had a pretty bad case in the first place and the right decision was made. Remember that barristers can act on both sides. You will often have barristers that work on one side, might work on government matters, but then may also work defending, also attacking government matters rather than defending, I should say. This is just what happens naturally. So remember that and don't think any barrister or any lawyer is bad just purely for doing that. What is bad is when there are contradictions in what they say and if they lie about it or they're not upfront about it. I can tell you I've approached counsel before who has told me that, look, we I have worked for the government before, but I'm very open to working on certain matters, for example, the mandate matters, and I respect that a lot. I like counsel or I like other lawyers who will tell me that openly, that, look, this is our opinion. Uh, we're kind of on the fence about it, but 
we don't believe in this or we're willing to assist here, that's great. Also, it was interesting to, look, it's always interesting to note that there are people who are going to work in different things, but there are certain barristers who refuse to take matters that are, I guess you could say, anti-mandate, anti-government because they are on effectively massive government paychecks and they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. That's a little bit different as well. So keep that in mind. I don't know why that, look, it's just something that came to mind that I thought I might mention. But well, I think anyway. that's, that's important to mention because I would just say that, you know, I believe, do also believe council did the best, you know, on both sides. They did an excellent job. Um, my sort of, my point about who's advising the government isn't necessarily to do with legal advice, but strategic advice within the de- like the minister's department, I think. So, you know, their chief of staff and, and the inner workings of the, you know, of, of the department. I think that there's just some very uh, question. Well, it's just, it, it to me, it's just, it would, from a diplomatic relations perspective, it wouldn't be, none of this has been the best course of action. Completely agreed. Completely agreed. Look, I think we'll wrap up. We don't want to go too long here, but is there any final words that you want to add in? Um, just that I think we've spoken about a lot of issues today um, and that probably many of them that we'll have to come back to at some point. I know I did go off topic and I tend to do that a little bit. So um, this is the first podcast I've ever done. So <laughs> um, forgive me if I did ramble, but I think that, yeah, like you mentioned, many of the issues that we've raised today are things that, like access to justice are things that we'll have to come back to another time and explore in more depth because they are significant issues. They do relate directly to human rights. Um, and, yet yeah, there's things that, that we, we do need to explore and the community needs to be educated on. Completely. Guys, we'll come back with more as we go. Bridget's going to be a regular guest now that she's done it first. Well, I'm sure there'll be <laughs> a lot more coming, coming <laughs> I as well. I do not know I'd be a regular guest, but I'll, yeah. I'm happy to sign up to it. <laughs> She'll be on here and we'll have other members of the team and other barristers and lawyers on here as we go along. I This is not just going to be about the law. I should say that. As I said, we've had Chris on previously. We've spoken about other issues about 2022 and going into the future, and there's going to be a lot of them. So the point is this will be more than just the law. This will be other different various topics as well. If there is any topic you want to discuss or talk about, let us know. You can hit us up on Instagram at Bunga Legal, B-A-N-G-A Legal, that's the firm, or my one is Samir.Bunga, S-A-M-I-R dot B-A-N-G-A. And do you want to give yours as well, Bridget? Uh, maybe not just yet. <laughs> all right, all good. All right, guys, well, if you want to get in touch with Bridget, you can just contact Bunga Legal because she's here anyway. So thank you for coming on, and we will publish this shortly. Thanks, Bridget. Thanks, Samir. Pleasure. Bye.